I'm Kim Hill, chairing a panel discussion today about climate change. Um, if there's one thing that can be described as borderless and global, apart from COVID-19, of course, it's climate change. It will affect all of us on the planet, no matter whether we're major or minor contributors to it. Just existing means we're contributing to it, right? Policy on how to deal with climate change varies enormously and it's become a political issue, just like COVID, with the argument between the laissez-faire right and the state interventionist left. The vital thing in these kind of polarized debates, it seems to me, is reliable information, which has the ability to carve out some common ground, which brings us to an initiative that our speakers today are involved in. It's called the Global Environmental Measurement and Monitoring Network, or GEM for short. GEM was launched in 2018 to measure and predict local impacts of climate change. Early nodes of the network have been established in California. Welcome to Dr. Tom Byer of Stanford University. And in Canada, welcome to Professor Donna Strickland at the University of Waterloo. And here in New Zealand, where we have Professor David Hutchinson of the University of Otago. Now, all three of them work with light, photonics, the science of light generation and the manipulation of matter at the atomic level using light. Dr. Bayer is executive director of the Stanford Photonics Research Center. Professor Strickland is a pioneer in laser physics. She shared the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018 for her work on developing the most powerful short pulse laser ever created. And Professor Hutchinson is a quantum physicist at the inaugural director of the Dodd-Wall Center for Photonic and Quantum Technologies. It's a multi-university center of research excellence, which has just had an extension of its funding until the end of 2028. Congratulations, David. A bit of background, New Zealand scientists were among the first to recognize the potential of lasers. Dan Walls led a team in the 1970s and 80s at the University of Waikato, and the Dodd Wall Center was formed in 2015 to pool talent, work on ways to process data in the form of light. So, let me come to you first, uh, Professor Donna Strickland, a self-described laser jock. Uh, I said that you'd won the Nobel Prize for your work developing the most powerful short pulse laser ever, as if I knew what I was talking about. Please elaborate on what you did. Well, I actually didn't have the world's uh, most powerful laser at the time uh, of what I did to get the Nobel Prize. We just showed how you could do it. Uh, we had a much smaller laser uh, where I was working. But the idea is, is that sometimes it's energy that matters. And sometimes it's just how fast that energy comes in. So I like to say that I built a laser hammer, right? Because sometimes if you just push on a nail with your thumb with all your might, it won't go in. You pick up a hammer and, and wrap it quickly, then it goes in. And so that's what we did is that we basically uh, took the energy of a fairly high energy laser pulse, but made sure that it was squeezed down into the smallest volume as possible so that we had that energy density. Uh, and by doing that, by having a really short pulse and squeezing all those photons down, we could have that hammer. And this is why it's led to things like eye surgery. Uh, it comes in and just blasts those electrons right off the atoms. Um, what's your vision, Tom, of uh, how data could be improved via photonics or via lasers? Lasers really form the basis for essentially all of the transfer of information from sources to the audience. In fact, almost everything that is going out from this particular interview will be translated into laser pulses and sent on fiber optics. So uh, lasers and fiber optics really are the core of the internet infrastructure and uh, have the advantage that because of the short pulses as uh, Donna described, they can uh, transmit large amounts of information very, very quickly. And they can do that over extraordinarily long distances, uh, over oceans and uh, around the world. So this uh, technology has really revolutionized our ability to uh, distribute information uh, around the globe. 
So, David, I mean, Jen, particularly uh, with regard to climate change, what do you think we can and should be finding out by means of this technology? Well, I, I think the, the key thing that we're talking about in terms of, of laser physics, in terms of light, is the fact that you can uh, remotely uh, and consistently interrogate the environment around us. So, for, for example, we can use laser light to, to do spectroscopy, to look at what chemicals are in the atmosphere, which is what uh, uh, effectively Donna was talking about in terms of using high-intensity pulses there. So, so if we really want to know what effect we're having on uh, an environment, be that nitrates in a river or be But we it, can measure that now, right? We, we, we can, but what you want is a consistent measure and you want a measure that is easy. You don't want to have to fly a, a plane and sample gas from the atmosphere. If you can do it remotely, then you can gain much more information. If we can remotely um, use spectroscopy to look at... Uh, um, nitrate contents on soil, for example, we, we can assess whether we're using fertilizer effectively. So there, there are lots of things that we can do using laser light and spectroscopy and, and various different techniques uh, to tell us about the environment around us. And once we have that information, then we can make informed decisions about what we're doing to, uh, to either mitigate our production of CO2, we can potentially see what the origin of that CO2 is, or we can, uh, we can look at other pollutants and, and then regulate around that or, or decide whether we need to modify our behavior around that. And so it's having reliable information that comes from the, the fact that we have this ability to, to sense remotely. And how speculative are those applications, or is it actually being done now? Uh, I don't think it's speculative at all. I, I think there are things that are easy and I think there are things that are hard. Uh, and so uh, a lot of what the, the GEM network is about is not necessarily worrying about the things that are hard to do. It's, uh, it's we should be doing more of the things that, uh, that we actually already know how to do and then we should be communicating. Part of the purpose of this is to try and communicate with other people who want to make measurements to say, well, these are things we can already do. Then there are other things that are harder to do, and, and that's where there's a research side to it, where we want to, to improve those measurements. But, uh, but at, at the moment, I think, uh, from my perspective, a large part of the network is trying to get the right people to talk to each other and so that we can get to the point where we, we actually know what's going out up there on in that beautiful blue sky with Rayleigh scattering and all that. But. Why did you, Donna, get involved in the, in the GEM network in the first place? What was it that was attractive to you? Well, it really came about uh, the year I was president of the Optical Society, and Tom was a past president at this point uh, of the Optical Society. They brought in something called the National Photonics Initiative in the United States, which I was not part of because that's not my nation. Uh, <laughs> But what it was about was just uh, trying to show society and uh, the public service the importance of photonics in just all kinds of ways in society. Uh, and so, although I didn't take part in that, I said to Tom, when we're ready to take this international, I want to be part of the international push to show most governments how important photonics is for a host of reasons. And then when it got started on the international level, OSA didn't want to go from government to government to government, you know, to talk about why photonics is important for their particular country's things. And in 2015, just about every nation signed on to the Paris Accord. So it was sort of a natural, oh, okay, well, photonics can help with that. Every nation is trying to do that. Uh, let's show them how important photonics is for that. And so it was sort of much more from my public policy point of view than from my own research point of view that I wanted to get involved. Right. What about you, Tom? What's your vision? Why did you get involved? Well, as Donna said, uh, I was involved with the uh, activities at the Optical Society, which is the main scientific society both uh, Donna and I have been involved with. And they've got 25,000 members worldwide, and over half the membership is international. When I was president in 2009, I made climate change one of the main issues that I uh, recruited our membership to be involved with. And we just expanded that to an international effort. And we've had wonderful response from basically all over the globe. And we're establishing centers in basically all the geographic regions. And uh, Dodd Walls is uh, doing a wonderful job of coordinating efforts uh, within the university uh, in Otago. I, I read that Australia and Brazil are having difficulty setting up their nodes of, of GEM. Is this... Is this true? Have you broken through on that? Well, you know, 
New Zealand it was a target for us because of your leadership there. Uh, New Zealand and Scotland, as it turns out, are two of the regions in the world that are really taking a leadership position with regard to policy and initiatives that recognize the importance of climate change. And there are certain areas of the world where uh, that is not the case. And I happen to live in one of those areas currently. Uh, and the, uh, the idea of being able to work with countries like uh, New Zealand and Scotland and Canada, where there is a enlightened leadership which recognizes that we need to work globally to solve these issues, understand them, and develop effective policies that can help us uh, mitigate and adapt to the climate change that seems to be inevitable. New Zealand uh, was a, is, is clearly indicating, again, its leadership position by being involved with the GEM network as one of the early, uh, early pioneers. Measuring things is one thing, developing policy is quite another. And if you don't get countries like your own United States or Brazil or Australia involved, are you still just preaching to the choir in that case? I think that's very true, but you, you have to start with the choir uh, and with people who are willing to listen and willing to work and also recognize the economic opportunities that are there as you go about developing new solutions and technologies. And there is, I think, a majority of the world that recognizes that this is a problem. And I think it provides an opportunity for uh, the leaders there and for the citizens of those countries to take advantage of a leadership position and explore the uh, economic opportunities that are going to present themselves. When you talk about economic opportunities, you mean in terms of um, quelling climate change or in terms of making money out of ways to fix it? Well, you know, I think it's a combination of, of all of those things. Clearly, there's technology needs that need to be developed. We need to be able to better measure, uh, you know, the global emissions of, 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 of greenhouse gases and carbon. We need to be able to measure air pollution, measure what's going on in the water, water resources, which is a particular problem in New Zealand and in other areas of the world, including California. And this requires technology that's cost-effective and accurate and reproducible, internationally accepted, as a, as a basis for these measurements. So it starts there, and then it, it comes down to the economic opportunities that present themselves by better understanding what the impacts are going to be. And then of course, there's the change that's inevitable to other sources of energy and other ways to power transportation, heat our buildings, and all of the economic uh, potential there for looking at different energy sources and different ways to basically live our lives with, with, without having to use fossil fuels. And all this is the promise of photonics, is it? Well, you know, photonics plays a key role. It has to be engaged with other scientific disciplines. And that's why this is a joint project between the Optical Society and the American Geophysical Union, AGU, which is the leading uh, uh, climatology and, and earth science society in the world. And it's working in conjunction with these two scientific societies and then with uh, 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 the other elements that David mentioned and can speak to, which are the, the policymakers, uh, the private industry that's really going to have to commercialize the technology that we develop, international standards organizations, people who can take the information that we're developing now and, and the measurements and actually turn them into uh, formats that policymakers can use to make effective policy decisions. And then monitoring those uh, the environment to see exactly what those policy decisions have made in terms of changes to allow us to better understand and adapt and mitigate the impact of climate change. So it, it takes a village. And also you're implying that policy changes are right going through the political process, but you can use this technology to examine whether they're actually working. Absolutely. And we have a great example here in the Bay Area. We've had a shelter in place uh, orders from our governor uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. We have a wonderful dense network of CO2 and air pollution monitoring uh, technologies, uh, about 100 measurement sites, very precise measurement sites that Ron Cohen at the University of California, Berkeley has installed and has been running for several years. He uh, has been able to measure very uh, accurately the impact of the shelter in place, seeing that 
we've actually reduced our CO2 load by about 40% over the last six months. He's been able to monitor the air pollution reductions that occur because of the shelter in place, uh, 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 shelter in place orders and policies that have been put in place. And it's a great example of, we can now feed that back to our policymakers and indicate, hey, th this is what you've done. And is it what you intended? And we can then use these as models to this data as models to predict what will happen as our governor has just said, we basically switch to electrical vehicles for new, new car sales in 2035. We will know what that impact is gonna be and whether what, it, what, what the economic benefits are gonna be, what the health benefits are gonna be. That's why measurement is so important. Could you not do that measurement before? No. You, the measurements give you a, a picture of what's going on at a particular point in time and space. But if you want to know why that measurement took place, you've actually got to use weather patterns, wind patterns, in order to be able to understand where that pollution, where that CO2 came from. And that requires mathematical modeling, inc incorporating weather forecasting, wind patterns. And this is active scientific research that's going on now. Understand how we go from measurements to specifying the emission sources. And then you can determine whether or not effective policy could be put in place to reduce the impact on neighborhoods, uh, on, uh, on uh, the, the impact that cities have in the global environment. But even more importantly, if you do it densely enough, you can tell what neighborhoods are being impacted by uh, in a discriminatory basis, a social justice basis by, uh, by air pollution. And you can begin to address these things on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. All of this is technology that really is not in the field. There's only two or three cities in the world that have the capability that exists here in the East Bay. This panel discussion about the measurement of climate change features a group of international speakers from Canada, Professor Donna Strickland, a Nobel laureate in physics. From the United States, Dr. Thomas Bayer, executive director of the Stanford Photonics Research Center. And here in Auckland, quantum physicist Professor David Hutchinson from the Dodd-Wall Center. This RNZ recording is in association with the Dodd-Wall Center at Otago University. And in the chair, I'm Kim Hill. The, collecting the data is one thing, but, but processing it is another. Is that where your quantum computers might come in handy, David? Uh, it's probably a, a slightly long bow at the moment, but I, I think at the moment we need to to collect sufficient data that we can make decisions on uh, on the basis of looking at these things with, with classical computers. Um, uh, if, if I was um, wanting to draw in the quantum side, which is the side where, where my research is, then, then obviously I'd say, yes, this is very important. It is one of the things big searches, big an analysis of data is an area that quantum computing uh, and quantum information processing may help. But I, I think in, in the short term and, and for this problem ar around environment, it's much more important just to get um, reliable data that it, it is quite possible for us to calculate and, and understand this on a, uh, using classical computers. We, we've got a small pilot scheme at the moment in, in Dunedin where we make photonic-based particle uh, pollution sensors which we distribute to kids through schools so they can go and measure the particular air pollution around their school or take them home. Um, and, and so this, this is creating a dense network um, of sensors in Dunedin, which we, we then are working with a, a company, Animation Research Limited, um, which uh, many people will be familiar with. They, they do all the graphics for, for golf, uh, for the, the fly-throughs, for the golf courses and tracking the balls and things like that. They've done some nice visualization software, so we can actually uh, take the data and then we can show the areas of Dunedin that have worse particular air pollution and areas that have better. Uh, we, we have a very hilly city, as, as you know, and there are, in the winter there are areas where you have temperature inversions and pollution gets trapped, and so the, there are significant health outcomes, negative health outcomes associated with that pollution. And so it, it, at the moment it's not monitored and it's not mapped, and so this is something we can start doing in, in, you know, based on technology that we, we have, uh, sensors that have been developed here in this, in this building, actually, by Southern Photonics, uh, and we can distribute that relatively cheaply and get kids to actually really understand what is happening in their environment, and then lobby the Otago Regional Council to, to make changes, or the education ministry, half of our schools still burn solid fuel. You know, like that, that's affecting, um, potentially affecting the health of our kids. It's so. interesting, isn't it? It's like personalizing the information 
so that the people who are in a position to do something about it can't say somebody else's problem. Absolutely. Um, Donna, what got you involved in lasers in the first place? Uh, my mother tells the story that uh, when I was 10, uh, the Ontario Science Centre was brand new in Toronto and, and my parents took the three kids. And it's surprising that in 1969, the, the Ontario Science Museum already had a CO2 laser there because in 69, they really weren't out of the research labs much, right? Uh, and my dad, who was an electrical engineer, supposedly said to us kids, we have to see this, this is the way of the future. Now, I don't really remember that, but my mom says, anytime I would talk about it, mom would tell you that was why I have a love of lasers. You know, I was looking around for what I wanted to do as an undergrad and a nearby university had a program in lasers and electro-optics. And I just read it and went, that just sounds so much fun. Like who wouldn't want to study that? And, and partly, I guess, because you didn't see them all the time. It, it was sort of this new thing and um, it was in the seventies and uh, it just sounded too cool. I asked you earlier about that, that picture behind you um, that we can see on the Zoom screen. Can you tell me that, please? So uh, my husband's grandfather was an artist. He had a studio in the Smithsonian and AT&T Bell Labs back in a long time ago, I guess the 30s, uh, commissioned a, a marble of Alexander Graham Bell. And the story that goes along with this, so this is just a picture of the marble. Yeah. Um, when it was done, it's in the newspapers that his family was very upset, saying he just looks like a grumpy old man. And Alexander replied, I am a grumpy old man. Now, supposedly he was kind of grumpy because he always thought he could better himself than just the telephone because he did the telephone fairly early and always thought he could top it. Right? So I, I, I like to have it behind me now when I'm doing all these uh, Zoom things just to keep reminding me. What about you, Tom? Why photonics? Well, you know, uh, when I was in college, I decided I was quite an activist and decided if I was gonna go in and do science, which has been my interest since I was very young, that I really wanted to choose an area where I thought that there would be a societal applications and something, a technology that not only had a, a, a good science uh, application, but also was something that would, would have an impact. And so I chose uh, to focus on laser technology because I felt that that was a good combination of of uh, where I could do, do good science and yet also uh, contribute in an activist way towards solving societal problems. How did you draw that conclusion that getting involved in laser science and photonics would, would help you know, save the world? Well, again, at, back in the early 70s when I was making these decisions, uh, it was clear that lasers were beginning to be applied in medicine. There being, it was prior to fiber optics for the most part and telecommunications, but lasers were moving into supermarkets as supermarket scanners and uh, going into CD players. It was pretty clear that the technology was making this transition from a laboratory curiosity to a commercial impact. And there was opportunity there. And I felt I was also interested in being involved with industrial research, which is where I took my career after I got my PhD and uh, looking at different laser applications as well. The other side of this is I am partially colorblind and I, this could be a, con a compensatory mechanism for just being able to finally see some bright colors in regions of the spectrum where I'm not very sensitive. So that's another reason why uh, lasers appeal to me. I mean, I can, you've done a number of, of um, startup companies from Silicon Valley. I can understand exciting on one level because I mean, personal enrichment, nothing wrong with that. But how did, you, how did you make the extension to they could do good for the world? I mean, supermarket checkouts is not the sign of a sainthood on the way. No, it's a good question. And, you know, uh, it, it's basically not only lasers, but how lasers get applied. And it's very similar to what you asked earlier about what is photonics in climate science? Well, lasers and photonics play a big role in medicine. And that's where I took my career uh, in, in lasers, was looking at how we could develop biomedical instrumentation, which could help diagnose, uh, diagnose cancer, could diagnose uh, HIV and AIDS, could help uh, in reproductive services, uh, neuroscience. And that's really where I took my, my skills. 
is not just studying lasers and photonics, but seeing where they could be applied to really help people. And that's a large part of my career was involved with developing technology along those lines of, of biomedical applications. So lasers and photonics by themselves are not the answer. It's combining it with other, uh, other technologies and other areas of science, which, uh, which uh, can provide uh, a, a great impact and great societal impact. Yeah. Let, let's talk about the money-making aspect of it for a moment, David, because you know, all this climate change data collection, that's a very good idea, but can New Zealand make money out of our investment in the Dodd Wall Centre? Absolutely. <laughs> he made me ask that question. Um, yeah, so, so the, there are, the, the Dodd Wall Centre is very broad, uh, and so there, there are elements that are quite applied. There are elements that are, that are, are, are more fundamental physics. Which uh, is presumably the way you think it should be. Uh, ab absolutely. Uh, it's on, on, the, on the applied side, we, we have a huge agrarian economy in New Zealand. And so one of the areas we focused on in terms of our photonics applications are applications of photonics for agriculture. And so one of the best proponents of that is here in the audience, Keith Simpson, who uh, I, I, had, I think had great foresight and went out to the, um, to the dairy industry and, and asked what their problems were and, and found ways that she could apply laser physics to solving those problems. One of those problems being uh, um, how do you select sperm in artificial insemination so that you uh, avoid having bobby calves? You know, obviously, that's a, a problem that you can solve with laser physics. You know, it's, uh, but it turns out you can, and she's got a very successful company now that actually selects sperm on the basis of fluorescence, shoves the sperm around with little laser beams into channels, and selects just the female sperm so that you won't have any more bobby calves. And that makes a huge dif difference then to the dairy industry. It increases the efficiency of our industry. It increases the profitability of that industry, which increases the profitability of New Zealand Inc. So that's just one example of how you can take laser technology and actually uh, change what we do in, uh, in New Zealand to make the whole country more profitable. Uh, of course, in the process of doing that, she's generated another company, which then, in its own right, will make money. And so then you're developing a high-tech sector, you're, and, and the thing I'm most passionate about through our centre, we're funded actually by, uh, from Vote Education, not from Vote Research, Science and Technology, and it's, it's develop, developing then pathways for our graduate students uh, to, to go through, and so they can have a, a meaningful, fulfilling career in New Zealand in a high-tech industry, developing these sorts of things, not have to go overseas, we retain those people, and so then we have a higher-skilled workforce, and we end up with more people making more money, with the, the ability to make more investment, and, so, and we diversify our economy away from being so reliant on that agrarian sector, or tourism, which has just been decimated. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think it's absolutely essential for New Zealand's economy. And, and even if you just take, um, for example, recently with the Australian New Zealand Optical, uh, Optical Society and the Dobb Wall Centre, we jointly commissioned, supported by SPIE, which is another optics organisation, to, to do a study of the, imp uh, the economic impact of photonics in Australia and New Zealand. And, and from that study, uh, we identified that photonics is already worth about $1.2 billion in the New Zealand economy. A lot of that is the communications aspect that Tom was talking about earlier, but a, a lot of it, too, is around, uh, for example, small amounts of Fisher & Paykel healthcare in, in their... Uh, product testing and their product development involves photonics. And so a small amount of their business, which is a very large business, can be apportioned to the impact of photonics. And so it's, it's a service element to, to our economy already. And more importantly, it's a rapid, rapidly growing element of, uh, of our economy. So uh, the bottom line, I think, was yes. All right. Tom, I, I'm, you're in a better position than most to talk about the need for a kind of a critical mass of science research development going on, you know, Silicon Valley. Do you think that we could achieve that in New Zealand? Oh, I, I think so. It takes uh, government help and uh, incentives to uh, provide this sort of network uh, to allow risk-taking. Uh, one of the advantages of Silicon Valley is its size. 
And there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of companies that are being generated each year uh, within 50 mile radius. So if I join a startup, it's fairly easy, even if the startup fails for me to find another opportunity. One of the challenges facing New Zealand is you don't have that critical mass as you, as you put it. And it's important that the government recognize the risk taking that's involved with starting a new enterprise and provide that uh, a comparable level of security for those people who are uh, em embarked on these uh, more risky enterprises. Not too much security because you do want them to, uh, to try their hardest to be successful. But nonetheless, programs like the Small Business Innovative Research SBAR program here in the US are very, very important in those portions of the country that don't have the large venture capital uh, nucleus that we have here in Silicon Valley. When I hear these things and, you know, can New Zealand do it, Ken, um, I always bring up my, the example that I love is Korea. Um, my parents went and spent three months in Korea in 1991. And, you know, they came home and talked to me about it. And the first time I went to Korea was 2011. So it was 20 years. And I can tell you the Korea that I saw was not at all the Korea that my parents saw in 1991. Mm -hmm. And I mean, after they were finished with their disastrous war, I think they looked around and saw we're a mountainous country. We don't have the resources. I have to tell you, Canada, you know, lives with half percent of the world's population and 15% of the resources. So we aren't as driven as other countries. That's maybe our biggest problem to be innovative. But Korea went, you know what, what are we gonna do? And they put their eggs in the science basket. They built a science city. They put together their government researchers. They brought in companies to be there and they built a university to be there so that mm -hmm. government, industry and academia would all work together. Starting with a very small science output and before you know it, I mean, in 2011, I then go to another country and see three billboards in a row, Samsung, LG, and Hyundai. And I went, isn't that amazing that yeah. somehow Korea went from a poor country to this country that has three huge global um, companies. So I really am a big proponent that governments should be seriously thinking about if they want to do something for their economy, science is a good bet. Because, and, but it has to be fostered and it has to be fostered in a, in a wonderful way. Also, if you go to, and I think this is what your center is also gonna see in New Zealand, it sounds like they've brought all three parts together. But again, Korean universities, you will see Samsung buildings, you will see LG buildings, you will see uh, Hyundai buildings. They really believe that they all have to work together because you have to start with the purest research to get to those final new products. Right? If we don't keep feeding from the bottom, we can't keep coming up with new and new products without more and more information always bringing in. So this is one of the reasons that I am sort of a public policy person and trying to uh, always bring to the forefront the importance of science to the government uh, they the, and society. Right, um, And when we can talk about the importance of photonics um, just for global measurements, we've been talking about spectroscopy and things, but the beautiful thing about lasers is they're everywhere. Right, so one of the things that we're doing in Canada is that again, an economic impact, it depends on how you look at it, but we have the Arctic and a big part of Canada is the Arctic and they can only come in and bring supplies to our Arctic by airplanes for about half the year, right? The other half of the year, they have the ice roads and trucks can come in, but the permafrost is now melting and the airstrips are on the permafrost. And so we now have um, photonic sensors in that permafrost runways just to see the changes that um, climate change is having and causing havoc to the people. So that's a real economic struggle that they're gonna have if they, we can't get supplies to them uh, in the next few years. So I don't know, I just think photonics is everywhere and it's important from an economic point of view in all kinds of strata. You're listening to RNZ and a panel discussion about the measurement of climate change with me, Kim Hill. Professor Donald Strickland, a Nobel laureate in physics, joins us from Canada. And from the United States, Dr. Thomas Bayer, executive director of the Stanford Photonics Research Center. Here in Auckland is quantum physicist, Professor David Hutchinson, director of the Dodwall Center. It's possible, I don't know what you think about this, David, that New Zealand suffers from what's become known as the resource curse in that, you know, the land of milk and meat. And we, we really have not got ourselves away from that concept of ourselves. 
As, I mean, Korea probably didn't have many options. We're, we're very capable of change and adaptable in New Zealand as well, though. There's, there's plenty of opportunity and plenty of examples in history of where there have been radical change. If you go back to when we exported wool, uh, and then with the, the SS Dunedin, which was the first refrigerated ship, uh, sailed from Dunedin to London transporting frozen lamb, uh, that, that really transformed the New Zealand economy uh, overnight. Uh, and so we went from a, a backwater to, to somewhere that had uh, one of the highest GDPs per head of population in the world based on, on that single change, which was based on, uh, if, if you think about it, it's only 50 years earlier that um, uh, Kelvin um, was, was writing his treatises on thermodynamics, and it was all designed for steam engines, but it was the same technology that led to the refrigeration on the ship. And we had to have engineers here in New Zealand who could understand and build that and then, and then up take, take up that technology to change the world. What we're talking about here is uh, I come back to the idea that we're training people, and as long as you train bright people and give them opportunity, they will see the niches and the areas that New Zealand can contribute in, and we'll grasp that, and it'll generate industries. They, they may not be the, the multi-billion dollar industries, but we don't necessarily need them. If we just had a couple of Fisher and Paykel healthcare's extra, you know, like, the beauty of being in a small country is you don't need a, a huge amount to change um, uh, where we're making our money. And, and we're, we're not going to see agriculture go away. Uh, we're not, no one's talking about getting rid of that backbone of our economy. The things we're talking about are how do we make it more efficient and how do we build service industry and technology on top of that, which we can then sell to the world as another aspect of our, um, our technology and our, our export business. So uh, I, I'm very optimistic about where we are. I think, I think we've got great people. Uh, we've uh, got great investment in our, in our center through to 2028, and, and I think the onus on us now is, is to take up that mantle. We've got that's nearly a decade of a, basically the direction for atomic, molecular, and optical physics in New Zealand. And, and if we can't do something with that, then, um, well, then you probably shouldn't fund us the next time. Okay, okay. He's <laughs> putting his cards on the table. Um, I'm aware that the audience that we have in Auckland and in Dunedin are far better informed than I about many aspects of this question. So let us take some questions, please. I would like to know what success looks like for the GEM network. When do you pop open a bottle of champagne and say, hey, look what we did? That's a good question. Who would you like to hear from? Let's go to David. Oh. <laughs> I, I was hoping you'd go to Tom, to be honest. <laughs> I know. But, I saw um, that shifty look on your face. <laughs> on that. Um, uh, like, when, when people start... Quoting you back, well, one of the great successes we had here was when uh, um, the, the, well, the, the Foundation for Research Science and Technology, as was, when their, uh, when their literature came out for new funding rounds and they started talking about photonics, that was when we knew we'd had success. Uh, so that we'd actually managed to, to get them to listen to what we were saying, and they realized that this was an important segment of the, the science uh, sector and an area that... Uh, New Zealand had some influence in. So I think once you start getting politicians and policymakers to start uh, giving your same words back, then you know that they're starting to listen to you. So that, that to me, would be a moment to pop open the champagne. But Tom's probably got a, a, a better view than I have on that. Tom. Well, uh, just some examples of what I think are uh, successful programs that are ongoing right now. Uh, COP26, which is the Conference of Parties uh, uh, UN-sponsored meeting where the protocols get set up for greenhouse gas emission reductions. It's going to be held in Glasgow, Scotland. Well, we happen to have a gem center in Glasgow, Scotland, and we've been working very closely with the city of Glasgow now, implementing the same sort of dense network that I mentioned in the Bay Area. That technology is being transferred over to the city of Glasgow. We're right in the process uh, now of uh, installing 30 sensors in the city, and they're going to be monitoring both greenhouse gas emission as well as pollution monitoring, and feeding that back in terms of information to the city council. So I, every week I now have a meeting with the city of Glasgow uh, officials uh, discussing 
that installation process and what they're going to learn from that, uh, that network. We are uh, planning a preview event for the COP26, which has now been rescheduled because of the COVID-19 situation to November uh, of 2021. We're going to have a preview event November 10th involving uh, officials from the state of California, uh, officials from the government of Scotland, uh, representatives from the UK, uh, and uh, actually from Canada and elsewhere in an international webinar discussing the importance of being able to measure CO2 and greenhouse gas emission from cities. And we've invited mayors and city officials from all over the world to be a part of this, uh, this the audience here and to work with us to establish comparable networks in cities uh, around the globe. So as we begin to see this idea that measurement is necessary in order for us to be able to manage these uh, elements of climate change and air pollution and other aspects of human impact on the environment, we're beginning to see uh, the, uh, this global effort really take shape. So it's these individual wins, both regional and regional cooperation between the GEM centers that I view as uh, distinct measures of success. Um, thank you for that. Uh, can I just ask you, Tom, this is a, this is a kind of a philosophical and ethical issue. Has there ever been a conflict for you between being an activist and being a scientist? Uh, no, uh, again, uh, uh, as, as an activist, my role is to provide the information necessary so that we can allow our policymakers to make evidence-based decisions. So it's not really, and it's not the role of scientists to set policy. But it is the role of scientists to decide what they're going to measure. Yes, it is. And I think that needs to be done on a neutral basis. So we do need to make sure that what we're doing is covering the basis necessary so that we can supply the, the information so that there can be effective decision-making that's based on evidence. And so my activism is really neutral in that sense that I don't have a particular political agenda. What I'm trying to do is make sure I understand what the needs are of policymakers and that we direct our science to developing the technology necessary to supply that information in a useful basis. So that's my activism. It's not really uh, uh, of any particular political orientation. And again, it's not our role to set a, a policy or even recommend policy. It's to provide the information necessary so that policymakers can make evidence-based decisions. So can I pick up on that? Um, I, I think there's a real role for centers of informal learning uh, in this. And it's one of the things that I'm very proud of within the Dob Wall Center. We partner very well with, um, with museums uh, here in Auckland, uh, in, in Otago, and, and wider around the, the country. And I, and I think getting our science and information about science into centers of uh, informal learning, you, you reach so many more kids. And if you can actually spark that interest in science in just a few of those kids, then, then we have a real impact there, uh, perhaps greater than the economic impact that we have through some of the technology we develop. One of the great things that I've gotten to do in the last year was Brian May of Queen, famous <laughs> rock star. You know, he also has a PhD in physics and he runs an event that brings together the Apollo astronauts, musicians, Nobel Prize winning scientists, and, and we all get together and, and sort of put on a show almost. Um, and it brings people in that aren't necessarily science oriented, right? When I just go out and give a talk, I pretty much know that the audience I'm speaking to maybe aren't scientists, but they already love science. And, and it would be great if we can find more ways to work with entertainment and arts to bring it out to the wider audience. This is a, a completely naive observation, but it seems to me that back in the day, um, everybody was a scientist and science was a whole new, you know, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, science was a, was, a, was a great playground and very interdisciplinary. Everybody had a contribution. Then it became uh, siloed, but it seems now that it's becoming much more interdisciplinary again. The problem was that we became siloed because as we learned more and more and more and more and more, 
there's only so much any one of our brains can handle at one time. Uh, and so now it's now we are trying to get these centers so that we can have multiple people working together to bring it all together. Yeah, and let me add to that as well. You know, I, what I tell my students when they're looking for career direction is that working in the liminal spaces, the spaces between disciplines, is a very viable way to go because it brings a certain element of uniqueness to their career. So I encourage them to go multidisciplinary. It's not only bringing people from dis the different disciplines together. A true multidisciplinary team is a team of multidisciplinarians. It's people who have multiple skill sets and who can talk in the language of these different disciplines to encourage communication between the, uh, the leaders in the field in these different areas. So you know, I think at this point, if you're really looking for the greatest impact, it is through multidisciplinary focus. In, in, in many areas of science. The idea um, of, of, of this bringing economic prosperity as well as ameliorating climate change may seem to some people as a contradiction in terms because economic prosperity and growth is exactly what's led us to this impasse. You don't see going forward that there is a contradiction between those two things. I absolutely see the, it's not a simple problem uh, and with a simple solution and taking into account the impacts. In New Zealand's the impact on the, on the dairy industry if you're trying to solve the nitrate pollution problem. What is that impact? But there may be simple solutions where if you monitor the nitrate levels, there may be times at which you simply gotta be careful about where your cows are wandering around in the pasture. And that may help the cows and it may help dairy production. And what we need to do is understand the problem and have our policymakers, and this is where it goes beyond just science. The policymakers have got to understand the impacts on various elements of society and provide the sort of structures necessary to allow to compensate that. We can't just put a bunch of coal miners and fossil fuel miners out of work. We've got to figure out how we're going to transition them to more constructive uses of their skills and talents. So it's not a, 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 I don't think it's a simple problem. I don't want to imply that. Uh, I think it requires good leadership and it requires these leaders to balance these different forces that are there. I am inherently, I'm Irish, I'm an, inherently a, a, an optimist. And I feel that there is tremendous economic potential, even if we are balancing these different elements of society and providing equity to those people that are going to be negatively impacted. And we've got to recognize that. We've got to have our policymakers able to address that. And then we can move forward. But ultimately, I think there's just opportunity ahead of us. Like I, I live in a small city in New Zealand, Dunedin, uh, which you visited, Tom. Um, and all of the headlines in our local newspaper, the Otago Daily Times, over the last few years have been job losses and closures. We've uh, closed the railway workshops, the heavy industry there, Hillside Road. Uh, we've closed our uh, Cabri factory, which was one of the sort of uh, early uh, manufacturing bases there. But, but what's not told in the newspaper is that we've had quarter-on-quarter -quarter job growth throughout that entire period of time. So while we've been laying off those people in heavy industry, uh, Fisher and Paykel appliances, uh, which make uh, washers and dryers and things like that, they closed their manufacturing in Dunedin. But all the time we've had small high-tech companies growing in Dunedin. And so they've more than compensated for the number of jobs that have been lost in the heavy industry. And they're better paid jobs as well. And yes, there are people who are lower skilled workers who have lost their jobs through that. But then there are, uh, there are people who come into those higher paid jobs and there are more restaurants, there are more cafes, there, there's more service industry around that, which has, has provided other jobs as well. So in microcosm, I think Dunedin over the last uh, five or six years is probably, well, at least pre-COVID, been the, the most uh, vibrant that I've ever seen it. And, and I, I think what we're seeing there is, is an example of what we're talking about, is that we can replace some of the things that are maybe labor or product or, or resource intensive with things that are more knowledge uh, based, more uh, you know, where the value add is through intelligence and through design. And, and we can see prosperity that way, where we, we still grow our economy, but while we, we reduce our 
footprint on the planet. So, um, so, so I, I, like you, Tom, I'm an optimist on this. I think that there's huge opportunity, especially here, uh, for us to, to, to do some of these things. Are you really optimistic, or are you just pretending to be optimistic? <laughs> well, you know, you have to, don't you, right? I mean, there's no point in you sitting here saying, oh, God, the, what's the point? But it doesn't matter. The world keeps changing all the time. The shipbuilders had to quit building ships when the airplanes came along. And I mean, the shipbuilders could have complained and complained and complained to the policymakers, but that wasn't going to stop people from going, you know, a few hours across the ocean instead of a few days. And so it doesn't matter. We're going to keep moving. And so, you know, uh, and, and those of us in photonics will tell you, it is where electronics was there in the, the 20th century. It is photonics for the 21st century. It's, you know, we're, we're moving with the speed of light. And, uh, you know, I, I think you have to be broad based. I don't think everybody should do photonics, but I, I don't think you can just keep saying, this is the way it's always been. Therefore it has to always be that way. because. It's a global society and people are just going to do what they're going to do. You don't get people to change by predicting catastrophe or Armageddon. No, you get of course. people to change by showing the opportunity. And so uh, I, the, I think one of the problems with scientists today in the climate area is they just predict catastrophe. We have got to show people the opportunity or else they're not going to change. You know, if you talk to my, anybody in the States and you mention Scotland, they think whiskey. If you mention New Zealand, you think rugby. And you know that's gotta change. It's gotta be, we wanna want people to think of these countries as being leaders in the whole uh, uh, change that needs to take place to deal with the climate situation. And these countries, as small as they are, they can be, uh, they can take the lead on this. And I think that that really is what needs to happen. And you need to do that with a positive perspective on what's going to happen as we go about these changes and deal, deal with the the real challenges that face us. I'd like to thank my guests, Professor Donna Strickland, Dr. Tom Bayer, and Professor David Hutchinson for this edition of Smart Talk about measuring climate change. In the chair for this recording, made in partnership with the Dalt Walls Center at Otago University, I'm Kim Hill for RNZ.